a lot more since then. You've inspired me. Just because yeah. I, I see your stuff, I'm like, this is really cool. And I want Alex to get a bigger following. To, <laughs> to maybe get it out there more. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the worst at sharing things. Um, but speaking of sharing things, you're gonna you're here to share things about your life. I'm recording now. Um, kind of figured you were. Welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. Today on the show, I'm joined by my good friend Rob Faulkner. Rob talks to me about living in British Columbia, serving a mission in Arizona, living in Lethbridge, living off of nothing but peanut butter straight out of the jar, and then going on to Toronto, where he originally thought he wanted to go into medicine, but wound up graduating from the University of Calgary with a master's in public policy. Remember to, after the show, take some time out of your day, just five minutes, and listen to someone you know, and let them tell you their story. It might amaze you how interesting the people around you actually are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so welcome to My Wax Museum, Robert Faulkner. Uh, That's Robert with an R. How did I say it? correctly oh oh okay <laughs> you're just okay i get i get it how you know yeah okay i get your <laughs> i get your joke i'm just a little slow you're full of good jokes like that um but so do you remember how we first met i have no idea i'm assuming it's at church or some activity but i don't remember the first yeah. instance i remember the first instance oh wow i feel guilty now <laughs> don't feel guilty let me let me tell you what the first instance was okay i was uh, I, I walked into the gym at the Forest Lawn Chapel, mm-hmm. and there was there was this guy standing there, really popular, really cool. That sounds like me. Decent muscles, you know. You were like very fit at the time. Am I not so fit now? I I mean, you're still you're still very fit, but I feel like back then you were super super focused on being fit. Mm. Like that was your main thing. Yeah, I don't care about that anymore. And and you were telling everybody how. You had just gone uh, to Thailand or something. You just, you, or you had been on a yes. trip, and and you were talking about it. You had been in a motorcycle accident there or something. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and you're yeah you're telling everybody about it. And I was like, wow, this guy is for real. What? That was the first time I ever met you, and then, yeah, and I've known you ever since then. Well, I mean, I can't. I don't remember that um, instance, but one I do remember very early on. Uh, meeting you and I think one thing that struck me is that um, I mean I can talk with most people I can talk with everybody and have a good conversation with them but I I feel like with you it's always I can carry on a conversation for potentially a really long time Mm -hmm. which you know a lot of people uh, and I I like almost everybody um, there comes a point in the conversation where it's like well you know that was nice. That was nice. Gonna you know, check out some other stuff now. And yeah. I, people, you know, same thing with me. Like I'm sure not everybody wants to hear me talking forever. But I feel like with you, I've always one of my first impressions was that, that you were very easy to talk with. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. I I do try to open myself up to to people being able to talk, and I I like to hear what people think. And I think this podcast is kind of a result of that too, of having those conversations and being interested in that sort of thing plus i think you have a lot of uh, interesting insights to offer and i'd say you're probably one of one of the peers i have who i've learned the most from Uh, i think you're really good at 
constructing your ideas and presenting them. Thank, so thank you. You're welcome. Sometimes I talk a bit too much, though. Everybody does. Everybody <laughs> does. But this is this this is a podcast, so talk as much as you want, at least until I say time's up, because then I have to go to dinner. Cool. So, uh, why don't you tell me where you were born? I was born in Penticton, British Columbia. I don't okay. really remember it. It's in the uh, Okanagan. Um, it's sort of the central part of BC. It's it's actually a deserty kind of area. Area. There's actually cacti that grow there. Is it? I'm pretty sure cacti is the plural of cactus. I think so. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, it's a bit of a desert. Really? Uh, yeah. I always thought British Columbia was just raining all no, the time. No, the middle part. No, that's the, that's the lower mainland. Um, the interior is a bit different. Uh. No, the interior, the Okanagan area is, is a desert. Uh, it gets quite hot there during the summer. I mean, I remember Penticton now because I've been back since my my grandma. Uh, right was the sort of an oliver which is uh, a little ways to the south from penticton uh but yeah i was born in penticton uh apparently there was a brief stint on vancouver island in the port hardy area but my first real memories are in a little town called samo bc uh, okay which is about uh i'd say maybe a six and a half hour drive southwest of calgary okay um Still close to Calgary, I believe, than Vancouver. Uh, yeah. But it's yeah. sort of, it's a town of about 1,000 people. Um, grew up there until I was about 11 years old, after which we moved just one hour east to Creston, which is where I spent, well, all my youth before I um, departed. Yeah. Okay. And so, so do you feel, you do you, do you feel like that's still home out there? Yeah, in a lot of ways. Although, you know, my parents, um, as you know, my parents now live in Myanmar, mm-hmm. uh, also known as Burma. They moved there the previous year after living for a few years in China. And my brother lives in New Brunswick. So uh, when we talk about home being associated with family, like, obviously, that's not a home for me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do miss it. Uh, I think we'll want to go back soon. It's a different vibe there, a different environment. Um, but I'll also say Calgary is my home in a lot of ways. I've been here for about... Um, since 2000, uh, what would be 15, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. 2015. So I've been here for about four years almost. Um, yeah. and really grown into enjoy it, uh, close to the mountains. I would call, if we're going to call anything home, it'd be the mountains. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're a mountain man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoy being out in the mountains. I enjoy the forests. Um, it's where I like to go hiking, camping, spend a lot of my t- free time. Um, so yeah. Did that come from growing up a little bit? Because uh, Creston, I'm assuming, is in the mountains. Yeah, it's in the valley. Right. It's another name for it's the Creston Valley. Okay. Yeah. So, so did you guys grow up going for hikes and going and spending time out there as a family in the mountains? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of unavoidable. Um, if you want to go for yeah. a walk anywhere, uh, you're either in the mountains or surrounded by mountains. Yeah. And were you guys an outdoorsy family? Was like you spent a lot of time out there i wouldn't say we were like an outdoorsy family but um although having said that i think anybody kind of grows up in that area is going to be bound to be a little bit more outdoors and except maybe the most extreme outdoorsy people in the city right um if you want to be outdoorsy in the city you have to like actively seek it out at which point i find that a lot of people will do that fairly regularly if, if they are engaged in that already um i think growing up in a small town you're bound to be somewhat outdoorsy even if you live in town although you know what i mean by that is that you know we grew up with horses uh grew up often camping during the summer is a very common activity um plenty of time spending outdoors activities during the winter whether it was snowmobiling uh going snowshoeing or whatever mm. um but i i having said that again i wouldn't 
overstate the outdoorsness. You know, we spent plenty of time right. indoors reading, playing video games. Yeah. All those activities as well. Doing the normal yeah, exactly. teenage stuff. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And so so growing up out there, what was it like uh, going to school? Was it, was it a fairly small school? I don't know how big Creston is. Oh, man, I don't even remember the numbers. Uh, so there was one high school for the town, uh, Prince Charles Secondary School. Uh, I was in a graduating class of, I would say, maybe about 80. Okay. Um, so it was small. Well, I mean, I didn't think it was that small growing up. Right. Uh, small compared to a lot of the Calgary cities. Uh, yeah. High schools. But it's not it's not tiny. Yeah. I, there was definitely like smaller graduating right. classes in the area. You know, you hear places like uh, Crawford Bay or Samuel. Again, that place where I grew up, to, grew up in until I was about 11 years old. Right. We're talking graduating classes maybe like 20 to 25 in those areas. So... Um, I think Creston, uh, it was grade 8 to grade 12, and um, about 400 to 500 students. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So not not huge, but not tiny. No, exactly. And so do you think, because, I mean, compared to Calgary, it's a much smaller place. Mm-hmm. What What's kind of that, is, is there a difference in feeling for you living in Calgary versus living in Creston? And what, what is the difference in between being in a town versus now being in a big city? Yeah, um, there is. I'm not quite sure how to place it. What I would say is that I feel like in a city, you're much more constrained by routine. Mm. Um, you have your routine where you get up. You do a certain number of activities throughout the day, whether it's working, going to school, or something else. And then there's a routine involved with getting home and having supper and going to bed. And don't get me wrong, that that exists in in towns. People have their jobs. People get up and go to work. People come home and have dinner. But I feel like there is a little bit more of a relaxed feeling around it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there might be uh, a certain amount of time where you you have like a couple hours wherein supper might happen rather than like supper usually happens at this time. Yeah. Uh, during the summer, it was quite common to not come home for supper at all or call in and say you're, uh, you're going to a friend's for supper. And I, I think that might be somewhat attributable to, to travel distances. I spend, I, I have a very short commute. Um, mm-hmm. but even then I'd say it's been about 40 minutes to, if it's really bad on the train, maybe 50 minutes a day. Um, going to and from work. Yeah. Uh, I'd say most people in Creston, you go to work and you're home in about 10 to 12 minutes max. Really? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, there are some people with exceptions to that. Right. But I'd say that's sort of a general um, vibe there and less constrained. And let me put it this way. Actually, I think one of the best ways to exemplify it is that when I hopefully have kids one day, um, once they're teenagers, probably can get them a cell phone. Right. Um, even if it's a very cheap, simple phone, but you know the idea that they need to be able to call home, call the police, call whatever. Um, I think that's pr- probably pretty common for Calgary kids to have a cell phone during their high school years. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up in a small town, not really necessary. Um, you know, it's more you would give it to them for entertainment purposes. But I grew up without one until I was 18. That's only when I moved to a bigger city. Well, I thought it was a bigger city, which was Lethbridge, Alberta. Oh, huge city. Huge city. Huge half. That was a big jump for me. Yeah. yeah. So why, okay, so so then, I mean, because you grew up in these smaller towns and then you move up to Lethbridge. 
and and so was was it a shock because how old were you when you moved away 18 you said 18 yeah so so moving to Lethbridge then when you were 18 you moved out mm-hmm. and so what was what was that overall change like one living in a bigger place now <laughs> and then two it being away from home uh being away from home didn't bother me I mean we had something oh, to really? get used to yeah. um I uh, was living in a house with uh, two other 18-year-olds, my good friends from high school, uh, and the one 21-year-old recently returned from serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. and um, none of us knew really how to do anything, right. so uh, we didn't really know how to grocery shop very well, and we didn't know how to cook very well, so there's a lot of eating peanut butter right out of the tub, really? and a lot of like pan-frying steaks. Because that seemed easy. Yeah. Um, so steak and peanut butter and apples seem to be like a very, very healthy, very staples in our diet. Yeah. Uh, so that that was fun. Um, I'd say like the biggest shock was again the the jump in population size. I know Lethbridge is not very big, but to me it was a big jump. Right. Uh, it seemed like a very big city to me. I had to figure out where things were, how to get around. Um, travel distances seemed quite large, comparatively. Uh, and of course I had to get used to routines of like things like transit bus schedules and getting to Lethbridge college campus, which is where I was taking some classes at the time. And so, so why was it, was it just for school? Was it your buddies were moving out there too? What took you to Lethbridge? Well, all of those, um, school, uh, buddies were going out there. Um, I wanted to serve a mission for my church, uh, so, uh, but I wanted at that time there was a bit of a gap between uh, graduating high school and at the time and leaving. You'd leave around nineteen years old, right? So I needed to fill that year, and I wanted to do a bit of college, a bit of work, um, explore a to me bigger world. Um, of course, now Lethbridge seems quite small compared to living in Calgary, right? But um, for then it was a bigger world, bigger experience. Yeah, yeah, it was good. That's awesome. So you spent how many semesters were you out there? Just one just, in Lethbridge College, but then I ended up spending the summer out there working, uh, constructing and building grain silos. Really? Yeah. There was well, specifically specifically the turbines that go inside grain silos. Okay. Yeah. And had you had you done manual labor before? Or was that just kind of a summer job before you left on your mission? I had done manual labor before, not that type of manual labor. Right. Um, you know, this involved like a lot of metal cutting, a lot of spot welding, a yeah. lot of like gluing things together and sealing them up. That was new to me, um, but I learned it. Uh, what wasn't new was manual labor. I mean, I grew up again in a farming community, um, right? With also the other main industry was a sawmill. Okay. Um, so it was very common during the summers to uh, work throwing hay bales um, to get some extra money. Also working in the cherry orchards, either picking cherries or in the warehouses packing cherries up. So that type of labor wasn't new. Hmm. And so those are the nice BC cherries. Yeah. We eat, right. Well. Yes and no. Um, those are the nice BC cherries, but they're not the nicest out there. So I actually, during my bachelor degree, I ended up working two summers in a row okay. for a cherry farmer. Um, and I can tell you that anything that's really nice, really big, really juicy, actually gets sent overseas. That will really? go to China, uh, the UK, France, somewhere else. Uh, if it is lower quality and smaller, that is what gets left in our domestic grocery stores. Really? Because those are dang good cherries here. Well, yeah. Still. All I'm saying is that they get better. Um, really? Well, yeah. You know, a box of cherries. Uh, let, let's say one of those bags, bags of cherries. I don't know. How much those usually go for in the store? Oh, I have no idea. Let's say four bucks. Um, 
don't know if that's accurate or not, but we'll say yeah. a four dollar bag of cherries might sell for like twelve to sixteen dollars in China. So there's a oh, big yeah. incentive to send the nice ones overseas to get right. sold over there. Right. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. I know the uh, the peppers that I eat while I'm at school in Idaho, they come from BC. Interesting. Too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So BC grows a lot. I mean. Yeah, specifically in the Okanagan area. Yeah. Um, because there's that it's it's drier there. There's that desert factor. Um, Creston grows a lot as well, yeah. but it's not quite as arid as uh, as Okanagan is. Those are the big growing areas for agriculture. Hmm. That's interesting. So then uh, then after you you did a semester in Lethbridge, did you know what you wanted to do, or was it just kind of passing the time, take random classes? Passing the time, take random classes, yeah. Yeah. Were there any classes that stuck with you then? Did you know what you wanted to do back then? No, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, I did always had an interest in history and social studies. Right. Um, so I do remember taking a Western civilization class with uh, Farron Ellis. Um, who's uh, a college professor there right now. Okay. Yeah. Interesting guy. Um, yeah. Really liked him at the time, still like him now, although uh, we do very different research and sometimes disagree with each other on various issues. Are you still in touch? No, not think, really, or? but we've engaged before. Yeah. It was a couple times. Huh. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, then, uh, then you went on your mission after that. Mm-hmm. And where did you go again? Arizona. Arizona. And what was that like? It was great. I loved it. Yeah. Um, at the time, I thought I was going to be kind of bored. Yeah. Um, I was hoping to go somewhere what I thought was super exotic. And Arizona, you know, excluding the Grand Canyon, there's not a lot of, that's exotic, I find, about Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a beautiful state. Don't get me wrong. Awesome people there. But it's not like the sites. You, nobody goes, except, again, excluding Grand Canyon, nobody yeah. goes sightseeing in Arizona. Right. Um, but it was great because what it meant was that I could concentrate on the work there. Uh, I uh, served in both English wards and Spanish wards. Okay. Which are, were, you, were you called Spanish speaking? I was called Spanish speaking. Okay. But um, just because of the circumstances, first ward had enough Spanish speakers to warrant Spanish missionaries. Um, right. But not enough to warrant their own Spanish missionaries. So we taught in both English and Spanish out there. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, other parts of the mission, because of different assignments that I had, I ended up in uh, English YSA wards and English family ward. Um, so I spent a good chunk of my time uh, during the mission serving in English, but also, again, a huge chunk of time speaking Spanish as well. Right, right. And so, and you speak French as well, don't you? Yeah, not as well as Spanish. Right. Um, where did you pick that up? A university. I ended up after my mission going to the University of Toronto. I knew I wanted to improve my French. And uh, I figured knowing Spanish, which has a, a similar vocabulary and grammatical structure, yeah. uh, that I could maybe pick up French. Yeah. Um, so I did. Uh, again, I'm not fluent by any means, but if you drop me in Paris, I could probably find my way out of it and maybe right. to Spain where I'd be a little more comfortable. Yeah, yeah. And then back to Canada where you'd probably be even more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, then after your mission, you said you went to Toronto for more school. Was that at the U of T? Yeah, that was at U of T. Okay, and did you? Was it then that you knew what you wanted to take and study? And after the first do? year, yes. Um, okay. So the the first year, I still didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I took, again took a little bit of everything, uh, but I ended up taking a first year anthropology course and. Hmm. Did well enough that in the second semester, I was able to participate in an anthropology seminar where we went really deep into various topics, um, which was great. It gave me a very good foundation of what I wanted to do, uh, mm-hmm. which was me and I think about probably six to eight other students and a professor really digging into some, into some anthropology texts. 
Right. Uh, and it fascinated me. So I ended up actually declaring my major to be anthropology in the coming years. And so anthropology, is that the general study of humans? Because I know there are a lot of sub uh, sub majors in anthropology. Yeah. Right? So their anthropology is the study of humanity. Right. Um, and it ha- the four major subdisciplines are archaeology, which yeah. is uh, human artifacts. Of course, a lot of people know what the archaeology is. Uh, the other one is cultural anthropology, which is the study of human culture. Right. Uh, then you have linguistic anthropology, which is uh, sort of one of the newer ones, but sort of the study of of l- human language, but more from the perspective of like what meanings do we give words and what word what what meanings do words give to the world? Right, that's interesting. How we yeah. use words. Yeah. Uh, and then there's one that I'm forgetting here. People are going to kill me for the biological anthropology, right? Which is sort of a study of human genetics, evolution, and that itself can split into things like primatology, which is study of apes, right? To uh, medical anthropology, which is sort of like a cross between human culture and and how we use and perceive medicine. Within our, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up doing that, and I also ended up doing a major in religious studies, actually. Um, which wasn't theology. Uh, it was yeah. more like the, the concept and phenomenon of religion and humanity. Interesting. Why, why we are religious as a species. Right. Yeah. Man, that's some interesting courses. Now I'm thinking, hmm, might I switch my uh, major? So how long – so you got – was that what your four-year degree, your bachelor's was in? Yeah, so double major, anthropology and religious studies. Interesting. I had no idea. I didn't yeah. know that. That's really cool. And then, and what what would you say was the coolest thing you learned during that time? Um, man, uh, I'm not sure if I could really pinpoint one thing. I did really come to specialize is too strong of a word um, because again, it was a bachelor degree, but I did have a very big interest in what's called medical anthropology. Again, that cross section of culture and medicine. Right. Um. So you would learn certain things like how does culture uh, influence medicine? A good example of this, one that always sticks out to my mind, I'm not sure why, but um, there was a study done in India Mm -hmm. uh, of cholera outbreaks in this one area, and they realized what was happening is that women would often go out into fields um, to talk and will use the bathroom. That was their bathroom. Right. And because that was their their, area where they would defecate, uh, that would end up leaking into the water system, crops, and end up with some cholera outbreaks. So... This, I think it was an NGO comes in, digs latrines, um, and they find that the incidence of cholera doesn't go down. Um, and part of the reason why is, and there's a, this is a, partly a stereotype, but you, you know, here in North America, it's very common uh, in TV shows and movies uh, at social gatherings that you, where the idea of that woman go to the bathroom together to talk. Right. And so these fields weren't just an area to go to the bathroom. They were areas for women to congregate and discuss with each other. So the so implementing latrines or bathrooms didn't necessarily eliminate the problem because the, the issue was a cultural one where people would, again, and this is not specific to India, but um, women sometimes use those areas to go uh, talk with each other. And so the, the issue persisted. Other ones that I remember sticking to my head is um, sticking out to me was there's this idea, especially within Western medicine, that if we, as long as we educate people, people will do the right thing medically, mm-hmm. um, without realizing that people sometimes have stronger incentives to do things that might be even harmful to their health. A good example of this is women in Africa will sometimes um, engage in sexual relationships with uh, men who they know have HIV/AIDS, right? But who can provide stable financial um, 
they, they, they can provide finances to the family. Right. To their they kids. see another incentive that. Yeah. Right. So NGOs in the West will often have this idea that if we go in there and teach them to use condoms, uh, this will eliminate the issues, the problem. You know, I think that sometimes feeds into the stereotype that I don't know why there's this colonial stereotype that maybe African people. Um, uh, I think there's this idea that we're somehow smarter than them, which we're absolutely not. Yeah. Um, and if we, just, as long as we educate them, they'll do the right thing. When re- the reality is, they're smart. They know that if they use this, they will not get HIV/AIDS. But again, there's that that sexual power dynamic where they're concerned about providing for their families, and they might engage in that relationship, that risky relationship biologically, um, right? And still contract AIDS. Well, and I, I mean. How many how many people go without taking their medication to save a few bucks? Yeah, exactly. Right, they know. Good example. Well, okay, I might die, but at the same time, I need to have money so that I don't die. You right? You're you're choosing yeah. between these two two things. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so so after you completed that degree at the U of T, mm-hmm. what was next? I wanted to come back home. I wanted to be my home is out west. I wanted to be closer to BC. Mm-hmm. So Calgary was much closer to Creston than any other major city. Um, people sometimes when I tell people I'm from BC, they imagine the Lower Mainland or Vancouver Island. Right. But uh, like Creston was about a five-hour drive from Calgary and maybe a twelve-hour drive to Vancouver. Oh, really? So, yeah. So Calgary was always the much bigger center for me. So I wanted to. I knew I needed to be in a bigger center for employment opportunities, but um, uh, want to be home, closer to home at least. Right. So I moved back to Calgary, or moved back out west, I should say. I'd never moved to Calgary before. Um, I ended up, uh, at that point, I was thinking medicine. Um, I knew I wanted to help people in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, medicine seemed like a good option. My grandpa my grandpa and grandma on my mom's side were both medical doctors. Really? Um, so I thought that was a, a path that I wanted to go down. But, um, well, so I, I took a job at a medical, medical office. Right. Which... I thought it would be a good opportunity for me to like sort of study under a doctor and see how medical office functions before writing the MCAT and going to medical school. Right. Uh, I ended up getting laid off about three months into that job, which um, honestly was probably one of the best things to ever happen to me in retrospect. I think I rem- Did I know you when that happened? Yeah, you would have known me by that point. Yeah. So I was yeah. working in medical office, got laid off. Um, scary is not the right word, but it was definitely stressful. Right. Um, but ended up doing some job hunting. Uh, my mom was actually visiting at the time from overseas in China. And right. I, she drove me to an interview with uh, CCIS, which is Calgary Catholic Immigration Society. Okay. Um, ended up being a successful interview there. And I ended up working for Immigration Refugee Nonprofit, which really set the course for where I'm at now. Uh, worked there for about a year, um, helping immigrants and refugees with their uh, needs with moving to and settling in Canada. Decided that I want to move from a more frontline role to maybe more policy-driven role in that topic, in that area. And that's what led me to do my master's in public policy. Right. Okay. So that's an interesting shift. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, you were, you wanted to get this experience working in a doctor's office so that, you know, you could go on and write your MCAT and go into medical school, hopefully, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then... And then to switching to doing a master's in public policy, that's kind of a, I don't know. And I, obviously they're tied in some way because you like them both, right? But what, 
what has that experience been like? Because you just completed that, right? You just graduated with your master's. Yeah, I uh, wrote my thesis over the summer, um, submitted it, and uh, yeah, graduated, officially convocated in October. Yeah, October, November. I forget which, which month. Well, some, sometime yeah. in there. But, That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And so so then how, how long of a program was that? And, and what was that overall experience like? So the program was about one year continuous. So it wasn't, um, you know, one year, two semesters. It was uh, started in August and uh, I had to take some micro and macroeconomics, some statistics, uh, as well as a few other communications courses, public policy in a nutshell, um, at least as far as the master's program is constructed is sort of like a mixture of economics, communications, bit of political science, uh, all and law lumped in all together. The idea is that Public policy is the things that governments or non-government entities choose to actively do or choose actively not to do. Right. That's the key thing is that if a government doesn't do something because it's not aware of something, that's not a public policy. But if government becomes aware of a situation and chooses not to do anything about it, that's a public policy choice. Right. And in order to make those decisions, you need to know the economics of a situation. You need to operate within legal bounds. Uh, and you might need to learn how to sell it to the public. So you need to know some communications and some political science behind it. That seems like a packed year. It was very packed. Um, and it was a shift for me because anthropology and religious studies were both what's called qualitatively focused, meaning mm-hmm. that there's a big focus on on-the-ground research gathering where you might like kind of like what we're doing right now, sit down face-to-face with somebody, interview them, give them a survey. Uh, you might write down your observations. Right. Um and it was a shift because there was a lot of quantitative research there where you might gather numbers and stats. And I, I mean, I don't think one is more valuable than the other, but it was definitely a stretch for me. Um, wow. But I did do it with a focus on what's called social policy. Okay. Um, developing social outcomes and social policies to for those outcomes. Um, it was a great year. Yeah. So how, uh, ha- having a focus on social policies, is that like... Is your focus more on a certain community or a certain group of people? Is that kind of what that what that means? Yeah. Well. So. Well, man, that's a big question. So, social policy in general is the delivery of social services to to a population. Okay. There might be specific populations you target. So, for example, my boss, Ron Nebone, he focuses on the homeless population. Okay. So, and people in poverty generally. Hmm. So he, it's an area of social policy where he'll help develop and analyze and assess policies designed to help that target demographic. Uh, Myself, I focus on immigration and refugee policies, sort of continuing on that experience at CCIS. Right. So I focus on um, outcomes of current government policy around immigrants and refugees, uh, how we can improve it, and uh, yeah, that's sort of my focus now. And so I should add here is that after I finished my master's degree, I ended up actually getting hired on at the School of Public Policy downtown at the University of Calgary. Um, which sort of straddles the line, bridges the gap between think tanks and a university department. So hmm. academic peer-reviewed research, but we can pump it out a lot faster and maybe a little bit less focus on getting to journals and more focus on educating the public and advising government. That's pretty cool. So so you deal with a lot of research then? Yeah, I, a very research-oriented job. What are What are some of the most interesting... I don't know, maybe maybe statistics, facts, or maybe general ideas that have kind of uh, come across your your desk. 
Well, I mean, I'll, I'll talk specific to my research right now. Yeah. One is uh, I've recently published an article talking about how Canada had recently surpassed the United States in becoming the number one resettler of refugees in the world. Now, that's a very specific term. When we talk about resettlement, these are refugees who are sitting in places like refugee camps abroad that Canada purposely brings to Canada because they're in danger of some sort. We bring them here, we settle them here, and give them permanent residency and a path to citizenship. Sometimes we conflate that term with people who um, cross borders or, you know, we're, I'm thinking specifically about the European migrant crisis. Right. Uh, and don't get me wrong, those people might be very well in legitimate fear of danger and might be classified as refugees. The difference is that one is a, a planned movement of people. The other one is an unplanned movement of people that we have to co- sort of assess on, on the fly. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so number one relative to population or just numbers sheer numbers both both yeah so canada for a long time had had one of the largest per capita right resettlement programs in the world of refugees um but then in terms of absolute numbers we also surpassed the united states uh in 2018 and um it was interesting when i published that article because some of the reactions to it were a lot of people patting ourselves on the back saying you know go canada and right we we have don't get me wrong we have increased the number of refugees we've resettled in the pre- compared to previous years mm-hmm. not by much but we have done that the bigger reason was a, a steep in- decrease starting in 2017 of refugees being resettled by the united states yeah um which was a decision by a specific administration in the united states to lower the number of refugees they were going to take so Again, this big reaction I thought was um, funny in kind of a sad way uh, of people saying, go Canada. I was like, no, this is not. It's it's more about other people diminishing than us improving. Yeah, if you were to compare it to a a track and field race, um, it's not that suddenly we got this magnificent burst of speed that put us in front. Is that the person who was previously the front runner? In this case, the United States slowed way down and we suddenly kept up our pace and, and passed them. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. It's, I mean, you dealing with all this research and dealing with people, you must see how how different ideas can be conflated and mistaken and misunderstood. So how how do you now, uh, in in your work and in your job, try and help people understand more clearly what's actually happening? That's a good question, um, especially on the issue of immigration and refugees. It's a very polarized topic right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, there is a very marked increase in uh, what we call xenophobic. Xenophobic means like fearing strangers or fearing pe- foreigners. Right. Um, there is a marked increase in that. I find, though, is that um, we shouldn't label anybody who has questions or concerns over immigration uh, as a xenophobe automatically off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that by doing that, we close the door and we actually have the potential to increase xenophobic sentiments mm-hmm. in combination with people who are actively pushing those those feelings. Right. Um, I, where I found is that uh, in educating the public and engaging with people who um, are stakeholders in immigrant and refugee resettlement, the most important thing is to establish up front whether or not their questions can be answered. And as, I think this principle can be applied to a lot of things. If somebody expresses concerns over any issue, really, whether it's taxes or immigrants or the environment or whatever, and if you find that you can answer their concerns mm-hmm. with either new facts, say, well, this might be what you're thinking, but here's actually what here is what is actually happening, um, versus, uh, or if you can provide an, uh, solutions, you say, yes, you're 
the point you raise is very concerning. Here's some ideas about how we might solve that. A good example is people crossing the border illegally into Canada um, to claim asylum here. Right. Um, if somebody said, if you can say, if somebody says, well, I'm worried about how many are coming over, and you can say, well, only about forty thousand people are coming over, which is a lot compared to previous years, but really is still yeah. a small number compared to our total population. Right. And like, oh, okay. Or you can answer by saying, like, yes, that is an issue. Here are some things that we can do to solve that. I found that that's a very easy way to differentiate between somebody who has xenophobic and perhaps racist sentiments mm-hmm. from somebody who simply has concerns. If they have concerns, they will let their concerns be answered. Right. Um, people who have genuine xenophobic or racist sentiments, there's nothing I can say or do, whether by giving them facts or giving them potential solutions, that will convince them that this is not a problem. Hmm. I can say, yes, this is how we solve it, or yes, these are the facts, and there's nothing I can do to convince them that the that immigrants are not a threat to Canada. Right. Um, or that we can potentially mitigate threats to Canada. And that that's sort of how I navigate that. Um, so making a space for people with concerns to freely express them without being labeled with perhaps some negative label right um while also also standing strong against people who um who might actually have harbor what i think are very hateful sentiments yeah 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 because i of course those people exist but it's not i'd say it's you know out of the people that i know very 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 far and few yeah right i would say out of all the um out of all the different groups out there, I'd say by and large, most Canadians are supportive of immigration. Then there's a large group that are um, supportive, but may have concerns. Right. And then there is a very small, but very loud um, group who uh, dislike or even hate immigrants. Right. And uh, again, I think I, I mean, I, in my public engagement, I do condemn those people um, and their feelings quite loudly um, Mm -hmm. and quite strongly. But there's there's sort of a, an art, and I don't want to claim to have perfected it, in both condemning that while also making a space for people who have concerns but don't share the same sentiments. Right, yeah. right. That's interesting. Um, I, I know, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, that you and I could probably chat forever and ever. And I mean, most of our conversations revolve around public policy, politics, <coughs> and all the sort right uh and i'm sure we'll have more conversations like that but to kind of wrap it up here what do you hope uh, for your career and for your future moving forward in the next 10 years and then for by the time you're 80 uh that's a <laughs> something i'm still trying to sort out myself um i i've kind of come to not i'm not at the crossroads um but definitely I'm seeing crossroads down in the distance. Um, one of them is to possibly go on to private consulting. Um, there's quite a few firm, public policy related firms out there that with enough experience, I think would be happy to work with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other option, uh, if I get ample funding and if I can handle various loans, um, you know, I have had people tell me I need to do a PhD. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure in what yet. I've thought about maybe perhaps economics or sociology or something along those lines. Mm. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, either way, I think it'll have a, definitely a public policy focus, um, helping governments and non-government entities make and choose decisions. Um, right. But yeah, that's sort of what's what's down the path for me. Yeah. And then what about when you're 80? What do you want to look back on? Uh, I, 80 uh, family is the big thing. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely do want to have a family someday. Um, and hopefully... 
provide them with the tools they need to make correct choices, ethical choices, um, to create a better world for themselves, their family, their own families, and the people around them. Um, so I definitely say that's the big focus for me. That's awesome. Well, thanks for coming on My Wax Museum, Rob. Thank you for having me, Alex. And thank you for listening. Now, recently I started a small podcasting network with some of my internet podcasting friends. It's been a lot of fun to start up this little thing. It's called Little Gray Boy Podcasting Network. It's named after Luke's cat. Luke is from the Rules Lawyers D&D podcast. There are a few of us in the group, so make sure you follow at LittleGrayBoy2 on Twitter. It's a lot of fun, and there are a lot of great shows. Speaking of getting to know people, the whole point of My Wax Museum has been for me to get to know the people around me on a little bit deeper of a level, to really take that time to listen to them, to really engage in that quality, one-hour, full-length conversation. And I hope that the message you take from this show is that the people around you are just as interesting. Just take those five minutes today to listen to someone around you. Mm -hmm.